Good morning, Arbor. Good to see you today. Wrapping up January. Hello, beautiful. We love you. Um, so glad to be here today. Um, I can't help but start today with just pausing for a saint that is not with us today, but is in the place that we all hope and long to be someday. And I can't wait to see Ed and talk to him. He always had good little anecdotes for me after my messages, always so kind. So looking forward to that. I want to start today by saying I am probably very ill-prepared for this message for today. I'm just telling you that right now. So whatever message, whatever prayers you want to send my way, I'd appreciate it. You know, when we come up with a series or the staff comes up with a series to do, I think they all sit around and giggle and laugh and say, let's give Scott this part right here. The short straw. You know, they draw straws and I'm never in the room and somehow I'm always getting the short straw. All right. So when it comes to like grief or suffering or adultery or those fun topics in the Bible, somehow they land on my plate. And you know, life has a way and it's probably a mixture between God and just the way life goes that they land on my plate at times when things are very busy. Many of you know I'm a school principal and life has just been chaotic. Um, especially this month with the surge and all the testing we do at schools. It's been a lot of work, a lot of wading through waters. Um, I mean, I, the highlight of my day on Friday, something happened for the first time ever in my career on Friday. I got a, I got a radio call because I walk around with the radio. Um, could you come to recess? One of our second graders popped his eye out. Oh, no, don't just wait. It's a glass eye. I did not know he had a glass eye. I was like, what? <laughs> yes. And it fell on the ground and they're looking on the turf for it right now. Oh, so he found it, picked it up, was going to put it in his mouth to clean it off and pop it right back in. So I'm just letting you know that little snippet of five minutes of my day, <laughs> you know, I can't make this stuff up. I'm not lying to you. I was like, I, I had no idea. I'm like, how? Oh, I'm the world's worst principal. I did not know we had a kid walking around with a glass eye. That is very intriguing to me now. You know, so uh, that's where I'm coming from. That was my Friday afternoon, all right? And now I'm just going to sit here and we're going to wade through Romans to talk about suffering. And, and that is a huge topic. And you think about the world we're living in right now, boy, is it apropos, because there's been a lot of suffering in the last two years, but throughout history of mankind. And I've got 30 minutes to try to take that suffering and connect it to this hope that God gives us so we can have an eternal perspective while we're walking through the muck and mire on earth here of suffering. And that is not an easy thing to do. So I ask for your grace and your prayers and your patience as I wade through these notes. And I hope that we arrive at a place when you leave here, you have a better perspective of what God is wanting us to know and understand and how to navigate this world that is living and suffering day in and day out. So let's get me out of the way. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that you would take the notes and the words I have on paper and use them for yourself. You know it's been a hectic week for many people, including myself, but God, you have something to teach us today. Would you give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and hands that want to go out and change the world, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Cliff set us up by talking about how we are heirs in Christ, children of God, 
heirs of Christ and we get the same inheritance and the glory of Christ when we meet him in heaven. So we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 quickly because they serve as a bridge from where we were as heirs in Christ to where we're going now today in 18 through 22. So let's start by looking at Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's that last bridge statement right there that says, if indeed we share, and the idea in the Greek is it's going to happen. If you're going to align yourself and give your life to God and call yourself a child of God, you're also taking on the other side of that agreement, which is suffering. And it says, if, when, in fact, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You can't have the glory of God without the suffering of God. They're inseparable. They go together. So the first point I want us to walk through today is we must suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. We must suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. Jesus was the picture of this. This is what he constantly tried to tell his disciples. I will believe in you. You will be alone in this world without me, but I'm going to send you a comforter because you're going to need it because the times are going to get difficult. See, to be fellow heirs and children of God means that we share everything with Christ. His strength, his wisdom, his grace, the fruits of the spirit, all of that. And oftentimes that's what we're excited about. We get all those things. But we also have to realize we also share in his sufferings. The story of creation, the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible is about creation, loss, redemption, and eternal life. And that journey is rooted and weighted through suffering throughout the entire Bible. Nobody that aligned with God did not encounter suffering. That's what James says, all right? When you encounter trials of money kinds, not if, but when. And it's a guarantee that we're going to do that. So if we share in Jesus' glory and inheritance, we should also expect to share in his sufferings. Paul writes, we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Paul wants you to get this idea. He wants you to understand this and have it in your mindset. That what we're doing now is temporary. Now, I know that doesn't alleviate the pain. Doesn't take away the hurt. Doesn't take away anything else. And it almost feels like a slap in the face, like, Scott, you don't even know what I'm going through right now. But this is that eternal perspective that God wants us to have as we navigate a temporary world. And we are finite humans. It's difficult. And I understand how hard it is, and Paul does too. And yet he's saying to us, all right, we are going to suffer. And when he says suffering, a lot of people might think, well, that's the persecution the Christians were going through back then. No. Because if we look through other verses, he talks about the groaning of creation. This is anything that causes you hurt, loss, pain, sadness, difficulty, trials, tribulations. It might be things that were done to you. It might be things that happened to you because of you. <laughs> Oftentimes I cause more of my own trouble than anything else. But the idea of suffering is that we all have it. It's the one common thing that all of humanity experiences. And Paul says that suffering is part of creation and what we're going through. But for believers, for children and heirs of God, there is a hope. 
beyond this temporary suffering that we have. You know, I, I can't help but give a football analogy. I spent many of my years as a football coach, coached my own son, and this is a football weekend, all right? Um, I know someone mentioned the name that we shall not say is playing the Rams today. Um, <clears throat> but when I was a football coach, there were kids that wanted to come play on the football team. It's fun. Friday night lights. There's nothing better than walking out on Friday night lights. And you got the glory of the stands and the crowd and they're cheering and they're chanting. And there's a lot of kids that wanted to be on that football team. And they wanted to play football. And then they'd come to the beginning of August for two-a-days. The running, the sweating, all right, the working out. All the work, and they're like, what are we doing? Why, this does, I hate this. I can't stand this. I just want to play football. And I remember we'd say, this is football, son. This is football. The 40 minutes on the field is the game, but this right here is football. This is what it is. This is the grind, the push, the practice, the sweat, the team. This is the hit. Then you put them in pads, and they start to hit. And then they'd weed a few out. They didn't like getting hit. And then you'd get to game night, and they'd go through game night. We'd come back and go through practice the next week. They're like, I'm sore. I don't know if I can move. Nope, we got to run. We got to move. But what that taught a lot, of, a lot of kids I coached was this. If you want to have the glory of Friday night lights, you got to have the pain of what happens on the field day in and day out. You got to put in that work because you know there's something better coming. And I use that analogy not because I'm a football head, because we're in the middle of football nature. And you're like, Tom Brady rumored is going to retire. I think about that guy for 22 years. He's been doing football for 30 something years of his life. The grind, the glory that he's gotten out of that. And I share that because I can't imagine, you know, how it feels on a football field. Because actually, I never played football, but I watched my son play and I coached it for years. And the cheering and all that that you get in a stadium, that pales in comparison. That will pale in comparison to when we stand before our God in heaven and we have a new body and we are new creatures and he stands up and welcomes us into his arms and we get to revel in his glory for eternity Everything on earth pales in comparison to that. And that is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. We are heirs in Christ and we get the glory of God. And we have to walk through temporary suffering though. And it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not great. But I'm telling you like, when you can walk out on that football field, all right, with clear eyes, full hearts, all right, you will never lose. You may feel like you're losing along the way, but I can tell you something. I've already read the book. I know how it ends. We're victors. We end up with Christ. And if somewhere along our journey through this today, I want to try to encourage you with that. Because Paul knows if you don't have that perspective with all your heart, you're going to throw in the towel when it gets hard. I've thrown in the towel before. I've walked away and doubted. I was done. And God brought me back. See, the comfort and encouragement of this text is that in it all and through it all, God is with us. Because we're his heirs and we're his children, he's walking right there with us. So we understand that Paul wants us to have this eternal perspective. And in a moment, we're going to step back and we're going to take like the 100,000 foot view of what this suffering and why it's going on and what's happening. But right now, I want you just to stop and think about this. You can't have one without the other. You can't have God and all his glory and all his riches and all the fruits of the Spirit 
without his suffering. His own son didn't get that. His own son was not able to experience all the glory on earth till he went through the suffering of earth first. And so when we step into that relationship with him, it's like Cliff said last week in adoption, we take on everything that comes with the family. We take on everything that comes with God. And don't think that God hasn't experienced suffering watching his son die. Watching Adam and Eve choose something else other than what he had wanted them to. So with Christ comes great glory. And with Christ comes some suffering. Like, gee, Scott, thanks for this encouraging message today. This is just what I wanted to know. All right? Making me feel really good. So let's delve into a little bit of why. All right? Let's jump at Romans 8, 18 through 19 and see if we can little, wait, feed out this question that a lot of people ask is, why though? Why does it have to be that way? Well, let's, let's unravel that a little bit. Maybe that'll help you understand a little bit more as well. Romans 8, 18 through 19. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, there's that eternal perspective again. Present sufferings are not worth comparing what will be for us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That verse right there is pretty cool. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Here's the point I want to make. Eternal perspective provides hope in persevering through our present sufferings. An eternal perspective provides hope in persevering through our present sufferings. I can't say this enough today. It's not going to alleviate suffering. It's not going to take away all pain. It's not going to guarantee no hardships. But that eternal perspective, that idea of we're working towards the championship. I can grind it out through this stuff. I can love on God. I can cry out to God. I can weep. I can get angry. I can say what I need to say because I know he's with me for his glory. But it's so hard to hold on to that eternal perspective. Paul knows it because he said in Romans 5, 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance. And James talks about this. You must persevere through tribulations that you become mature and complete, lacking nothing in Christ. The idea is that if there were no afflictions, no difficulties, no troubles or pain, our fallen hearts would never ever more deeply fall in love with God. We would rather fall in love with the comforts and creature comforts of this world. If there's not something that makes us dependent on God, we will not go to God. It's easy to go to God in our high points and stay there, but there's no depth of growth and understanding. People that struggle together grow together. People that suffer together bond together. Talk to any family, any church body, any missionaries, anybody that's done work of God together and had to strive through suffering and loss and hurt and pain, there's a bond. There's an understanding of something deeper that gets revealed to you during those trials and those tribulations. I wish that I could stand here and tell you that, you know, it's like choosing door one, two, or three, and there's a nice happy prize behind each door. And that when you get that, your life's going to be better. And in Christ and Christianity, life is better. Life is better with Christ, but it doesn't mean it's different than the rest of the world that have sufferings as well. And I keep repeating that because we got to have the eternal perspective that God is with us. And I preached that a while ago, I think around Christmas. God is with us and we can't lose sight of that. There's not another way through it. So I ask you this question. Can we truly believe that our inheritance is Christ, 
that our inheritance with Christ is so great that all the troubles we're walking through pale in comparison. Do we really believe that? Do we really hold on to that during our darkest times and our darkest moments? So let's step back and try to take a bigger picture. What is this suffering? War, who's going through it? How's it happening? All right. So let's start with Romans 8, 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. If you got a Bible or something, underline those words in hope. We're coming back to that. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There it is again, that, that, that hope, that future, that inheritance. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I'm going to look at three things here that I hope give us a bigger picture of creation and suffering. And there's a there's a passage, one of my favorite passages is, is in Philippians 2. It's not about you. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. And it goes on from there to talk about how to be Christ-like. Part of being Christ-like is not having a spotlight, all right, philosophy of view of the world. It's easy, I mean, has any, have any of you grown up around somebody that makes everything about them? Has anybody been around somebody like that? Maybe I'm the only one. Every, you could be telling a great story and how you're going through things and then they make it, they just drift it over and talk about them again. And then you know, someone else is talking about this and they just drift it back over and talk about them again. Nobody's experienced this. Maybe it's just me and I just have a problem with people. I don't know. I'm like, can we have a conversation where something about you doesn't come into the conversation at times? That would be nice. Now, I say that in humor, but we all know people that every time we see them, it's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then they walk away and they never once said, how are you? What's going on in your life? All right? And I bring that up because I think, I'm going to talk for me, first person. I know when things are not going well for me, I can turn into Eeyore. Oh, everything's bad. Nothing's very good. It's a little rain cloud. And then along comes obnoxious Tigger, O-T-I-double-G-R, you know? Tiggers are wonderful things. They're bouncy, 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 fun, 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 fun. There it is. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Whatever Tigger does, you know? And the two of them become like this obnoxious combination. Here's my point as we wade through this, because I'm going to say this, and I want it to come out gently and kind, because Lord knows I'm a choleric at times. I can just say some things. Your suffering's not always about you. Your suffering is not always about you. It's not always because you did something wrong. It's not because God might be trying to teach you something. Suffering sometimes is because we live in suffering. And I'm not belittling anybody's pain. You've seen me up here in tears. If you've been here long enough, you know my story. I am not belittling, minimizing anybody's story in this room, but I want you to understand that there is a bigger cosmic universal play going on around us. And we are a part of that. And we have the, we have the blessed privileged part to reflect God to a world of how we respond and walk through our sufferings. Because that is what's going to draw people. Not when we're on the mountaintop and everything looks good and crystal clean and nice and pretty. No, 
It's when they can see us in the muck and the mire and the grime and the hurt and we're going through the same hurt and pain and loss the world is around us and yet, and yet, they seem to have a hope in their eyes. How do you do that? That's who I want us to be as a body of believers. But we can't, can't do that if we don't understand and go back and look at the cosmic play that unfolded at the flux of three rivers called the Garden of Eden. So let's dig some deep. First point I want to make for you is this. All creation suffers. All creation suffers. I've been in the corner by myself going, nobody has it as bad as me. If everybody would just understand, what was me? I have been there. And I guarantee you people in here have been there. And there's nothing wrong with those momentary times to go there. We see Jesus was there on his knees in the garden crying, please take this cup from me as there's nothing else I can do. We all get to those moments, but what pulls us back into the reality and the knowledge of Jesus and he's with us. So all creation suffers. Verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Notice it's creation that's in the grip of futility. Not just mankind, not just you, not just me. So the first thing Paul does is to put our suffering in a global context and give us some perspective intended to help us endure our misery and our pain on a global scale. The beast of the field, the flowers, the trees, the birds, they didn't ask to be pulled into suffering. The descendants of Adam and Eve and all of us, we didn't ask for it. And yet all of creation got pulled into suffering. Romans 8.21 says, and I like the English Standard Version here, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. See, this world is rotting away. It's why Jesus says, set up treasures for yourself in heaven, not on earth where rust and dust, dust you know, decay and corrupt things. I just matched that verse up. <laughs> this world is decaying and going away. Why? Because it's part of something more cosmic and global and eternal than us. Verse 22 ends by saying, the whole creation has been groaning. In other words, don't think that when we suffer, it's because of maybe something particular and personal in your own life. It's the fact that we live in a fallen world. And we're called to be saints and lights of God in a fallen world. If we weren't loving, serving God in a fallen world, why are we here? There would be no need for a God if everything was a rose garden. There's a song in there somewhere. First thing you need to know is that all creation suffers. Next thing is that all history suffers. The story of mankind is suffering. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you that. If you've done any study of history, you've been around and watched the news or learned, man, we wreak havoc upon each other in this earth day in and day out. All of history suffers. Paul says in verse 18, this present time, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. So you see there's a historical dimension to this that there was a beginning when suffering was ushered in. There's a present time you and I are in, but there's an ending of glory. History has a beginning and end. It will not continue in perpetuity on this earth. There will be an end to it. God is going to come back. He, he allowed sin to be ushered in. He helps us walk through it now, and he will bring it to an end once and for all. The question is, where will you be at that finish line? Will you be entering into his glory with him, 
or will you be separated from him and his glory? So this historic perspective helps us understand that what's happening to me is nothing new that God has not encountered. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It's all vanity of vanities, a chasing of the wind. The idea that history and suffering has repeated continually and God is no stranger to it. There is nothing we encounter that God has not foreseen. There is nothing that happens to us that God cannot manage. There is nothing that happens to us that someone else around us has not had a sliver or very similar components in their life. It's all of history. Paul shows us this global dimension of our growing to point out the fact that it's been, it has a beginning, but God wants to bring it to a glorious end. Look at that last word in Romans 8.20 where he says, For all creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is that in hope? What is that in there for those two words? Those two words hinge on everything else we're going to look at. And the next one is this. And if you don't understand this, then you're really going to not like what I'm going to say. And that is this, the last point, all right? God ordained suffering. Oh, what about free will, Scott? There was free will. But you just said God ordained suffering. So did God know that Adam and Eve were going to sin and he just set them up for failure? Or did he let Adam and Eve choose and he wasn't sure what they were going to choose? Yes, both and. <laughs> See, here's the, here's the struggle I had for years. All right? How do you do this whole God ordains everything and knows everything, yet man has free will? And I finally came to this conclusion reading through like C.S. Lewis, going to a Bren Brennan Manning to listen to him speak, Wise people, much wiser than I, and actually, my grandma, of all people. She looked at me once and she said, Scott, you suffer from need to know. You think you need to know the answers and everything and understand everything before you think it's the right thing to do. She goes, that's just going to cause you a lot of pain. She goes, do you really want to serve a God that you know that well, that you know everything he knows? Then you're a God. So listen to me say that again. That's the greatest lie that got us into this problem. You will be like him and you will know good and evil. We experience good and evil, but we do not truly know how those two can coexist together in the hands of an all-loving God and an all-just God. No more than I can understand how free will can also operate within a God that's omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, I don't get it, but I can live in it and be comfortable with the fact that God knows me as his child and he's there with me. It's kind of like the multiverse in Avengers. Really makes me confusing, but boy, does it make for some fun movies. All right, they've done that whole multiverse of both things going on at once. I don't know. What I do know is this, is that we're told that God brought suffering into this world at the garden. So let's walk through this. Paul's referring here to God's action in subjecting creation to futility. All right? So who do we know did the suffering? It wasn't Adam and Satan. We'll walk through that. It was God. So the story begins in Genesis 2 when God created all things and then he stopped and he said, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's great. He said, it's good. It's good. All right? It's wonderful. And he sat and rested. And then Genesis 3 comes along and everything gets stirred up. And see, when we got to Genesis 3, Satan came up and sold the lie of, hey, you can be like God. He told you not to eat of that tree, let me tell you why. 
And ever since then, we've been striving to be like God rather than to be with God. We should not strive to be like-minded like God in the fact that we know everything he knows. I have the right, I'm entitled to know exactly why you're doing to me this, God, rather than, God, I want you to be with me and I'm happy to be with you. There's a difference. We are to be God-minded in the way that we live and operate and treat others, but we can never be God-minded. He's too infinite and wild and reckless for any of us to imagine. That's right, I called our God wild and reckless. Just look at the universe. Look at what he did. That's a wild, reckless, beautiful imagination. And when we try to want to comprehend that to make sense of our sufferings here, we're going to drive ourselves mad. Adam didn't subject the world to futility and hope. Adam did not have a plan for the revelation of the children of God in due time. Adam didn't forethink and, oh, I'm going to bring us into the glory of God because I'm going to do this, then God will do this. And he didn't have a cosmic plan. No, Adam and Eve sinned and then they hid in shame. And God had to bring them out. Satan certainly didn't have a plan. He just wanted to wreck what God made. He wanted to get between the two of them. He wanted to destroy and cause strife and division. But Satan did not have a plan of redemption and hope. Satan isn't hope. Satan is death, destruction. So it was God himself. Now, only one person subjected the creation. And that's hard for us to understand. Because for some of us, when we say it wasn't just random or it wasn't just a choice, it puts God in this judge seat for some of us that he like judged something too harshly. Kind of like a guy stole a loaf of bread and Jesus goes off with your head. And that seems very harsh and reactionary of God. Come on, Adam and Eve, they did one thing. They ate from the tree. God had told them, if you eat from this, you will die. Death is part of suffering. See, God is just as just and integrity to his justness as he is love. And once again, we can't understand both. You want to know why we can't understand both? Because we're human. We're broken. And we have biases and we have frustrations and we have judgment in our hearts and anger in our hearts and we are constantly battling those which pull us away from more who God is. And we as humans can't do that. But that's what makes God spectacular. He can be equally just and he did not see subjecting creation to suffering as reactionary and over the top. Rather, he saw it as a necessary judgment to bring creation back into his glory. Would it really have done anything if he just waved his wand and made it all better and gone away? Over and over, I've stood up here and talked to you about what is at the root of Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, and us? A triangle. What is at the root of all that? Relationship. The Trinity works in perfect unity. No one tries to subjugate their authority over the other. That only happened once in the eternal heavens and he got thrown out and a third of the angels with him and that's Satan. The Trinity is perfect relationship. God created man to have relationship with him but you can't have relationship if you don't choose to live within the unity God desires. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have perfect unity because they all know their relationship is what matters most. With mankind, we chose to have a relationship with something other than the creator. We chose the created. 
And ever since then, we've struggled with coming into union and relationship with God. Because if you do that, you're going to get to know parts of God that are wild and dangerous and reckless. And when I say reckless, I don't mean in a human form. I mean in a form like, watch me go do this. I had the nickname for my mom, Reckless. She goes, Scott has two speeds, fast and faster. There was one time we were sitting in the, my parents, my aunts were sitting in the house and my aunt had this tree called a weeping willow. And I decided to climb to the top of it one day. And I climbed all the way to the top of it. And I'm standing up in the very top branches, taking little rocks out of my pockets and dropping them on my cousins down below me. I don't know why. All right. And they're looking up. They're like, you're going to fall from up there. I'm like, I'm not going to fall. Snap. Boom, boom, bam, bam. Branches all the way down. I hit the ground flat on my back. Can't breathe. Laying there, looking at the stars. My head spinning. My cousin runs into the house. Scott's dead. <laughs> That's something to startle your four ants out of playing bridge or gin rummy or whatever they were doing. All right. Scott's dead. They came running out. I'm finally dusting myself up, trying to get up and move around. My mom's like, why do you have to be so reckless? And in, her mind, and in my mind, I said, I'm just being daring. So when I think of reckless, I think of daring. I climb mountains. I snowboard. I do all these things, but I do them with safety and forethought and understanding. If you don't know how to belay and do these things and tie these knots and no avalanche danger, then you shouldn't go be reckless. Here's the thing about God's reckless love. It's always anchored in. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all the, all the things that we can, can't be, and he knows it all, so he can afford to be daring in how he does things. And when God brought suffering into our world, he knew that with our human condition of sin, now, we didn't understand sin. Adam and Eve have no idea what the sin thing was. They had just stepped in it. They had been in it for a few hours and were already hiding and shaking. But God's mind was vast. He goes, I know what they're going to need. If I make it better for them, they will never return to me in the relationship I need with them. He knew that. He saw the whole picture as, as if you could step all the way back to your freshman year in high school. Wouldn't that be scary? Would you do anything different? Oh, I don't believe that people say no. I definitely would. Or if you couldn't change it all, but just move forward with that perspective, would that not be different? It's no different than when your child's screaming at you, why can't I have ice cream right now? Because it's six in the morning. Go back to bed, please. There's not, but God had that eternal perspective and he saw that if I am not just in what needs to happen now, I will lose them all forever because they need to have a way back to me. I will provide that way through my son and my son will come to be the redemption for what they just sold to Satan. The only way humanity was going to get out of suffering is if they could somehow pay the price back to who took it from them. And God knew in that moment, and he knew when he created them, they're not going to be able to do it on their own. They were not created to do it on their own. They were not created to be without me. My son will pay the price to redeem them back into my glory. And so when we have that type of perspective, when we have that time of eternal cosmic view of sufferings, my hope is that somewhere along the way, you can pause for a moment and find your way back to the idea of God's in control of all that's happening. 
It may not feel like it in our finite minds. It may not feel like it in the moment, but he is. And he gives us some promises as we wrap up these chapters. He says, God's glory will be revealed. This is the hope. When he says, in hope, God's glory will be revealed. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are worth, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. We will have new bodies in him. For the creation has eager expectations for the children of God to be revealed. Our bodies, that right now as they are, we can't handle being in the glory of God. So God's going to give us new bodies, rebuilt, recreated to be in his glory forever. We have in God's hope, we operate in God's hope, not our hope. Our hope is like shallow. It's like almost a birthday wish. God's hope is a certainty, and that's what it means. God's hope says it will happen. We are operating in his hope, not my hope, not Adam's hope, not Allison's hope, who's one of the most hopeful people I know. None of that hope. It's God's hope. And then there's freedom. This world that we're chained to is going to be broken and demolished, and we're going to have the freedom of living with Christ in eternity. And then don't ever forget, this is just temporary. If you've ever watched one of your favorite epic movies, there's always a part in the movie, and sometimes it's like cool music playing in the background, and they're all these doing these different things, and it's like a, a time lapse of the music scene. But it's always because the hero or the person in the story has gone through a difficult time. Something's gone bad and then there's the epic conclusion. See, that's wired into all our beings because God has put on us the idea that there's something better at the end and it's him. And for some of us, we have made the choice to get to know him now. And because we know him now, we also need to know that we're gonna have some sufferings. But I want to conclude with this. You're not alone. We are a body of believers. Hayden's here. You can come up now, Hayden, if you want. We're a body of believers. And what I want you to know about this passage is Paul is writing to the Romans, from Romans. He's writing to the Christian churches around the world. And this letter is going to travel. And what he's saying is, in all the other passages, we are together in this. See, too often in our Judeo-Christian ethics, we have this individualistic mindset that I got to pull myself up and I got to get myself right with God. And God wants me to do this and God wants me. And we make it this individual mindset and it's never been individualistic. God's never been individualistic. He's been a trinity. There's been a collective mindset. God didn't call one disciple. He called 12 we need to be a collective body that even though we have this eternal perspective, we're able to step into the empathy, compassion, and love for others around us and help them in their pain and suffering and be there for real things they need. Jesus always fed a physical need, an emotional need first before he got to the spiritual need. We need to be a church that understands his eternal perspective and our mission should be we want to bring people through the suffering into the glory of God with us. I want to remind you that Jesus himself had a moment that I said where he was suffering in the garden and he was on his knees crying, crying for a way out. He begged his disciples, pray with me. They fell asleep. He's on the ground, drops of blood coming from him, sweating so hard. He did not want to go through the suffering. He more than anybody. He was there at the beginning. He knew how this was going to play out. Yet in his finite human mankind mind, it didn't want to happen. It hurts too much. I want to quit. Just take it away, God. You could have, this isn't worth it. Why are we doing all this? Do you not see what's happening here? 
And he was alone. Somehow in that moment, somehow in that moment, Jesus, our Savior, found his way back to the eternal perspective. It didn't alleviate the pain he was going to have to walk through on the cross. It didn't take away the separation from his father. It didn't take away the feeling of betrayal and abandonment. But he got up off the ground. And he knew the eternal perspective that God ordained this. God's in control of it. God wants me to walk through this because it's going to lead to the glory of our creation back to him. And he hung on the cross and he looked at John and he said, my mother, take care of her. My message to us when we know all this as believers, are we taking care of one another? Because while I can stand up here and give you an eternal perspective and tell you that it should help us get through our sufferings, I'm also a broken man that tells you sometimes I just need someone to come alongside and say, hey, let me take care of you. Let me help you. This church began in pain and loss. We've walked through pain and loss. Every church will continue to because we live in a world of suffering. But there's an eternal God who wants us to glory with him. And may we come together collectively and carry each other through this as a body of believers that knows we're walking towards a glorious reunion with our creator. Let's pray. God, you're an awesome God. There's no way to ease people's hurt and pain when it comes to suffering, God. Only you can do that, Lord. God, I'm just here to help us try to paint a picture that there's more at play than we could ever imagine. And at the center of all that is you, God. And you love us. You care for us. You sent your son. And you tell us that we are your children. We are your heirs. We get your inheritance. We get to spend eternity in your glory that we can't even fathom it. God, may we, may we in those moments of darkness and hurt and loss, give us that eternal perspective of somehow, Somehow, we can walk through this suffering because it's not just about us. It's about you and your story. Thank you, God, for giving us a way through this. I look forward to the hope of glory with you. In Jesus' name, amen.